somewhere. Quick question. Who in some way at the beginning of the year made some sort of resolution, commitment, or at least had the tiniest inkling somewhere deep down you might exercise more in the next year? Just raise your hand. Okay. So some of us, all right, and, and some aren't willing to admit. Okay. <clears throat> I'm going to give you a 500-year-old exercise this morning. It's not, the, it's not the main message. It's kind of a freebie, all right? Giving you a 500-year-old exercise. Ignatius of Loyola, about 500 years ago, put together something called the Ignatian Exercises. And one of them is called the Examen, E-X-A-M-E-N. It's pronounced Examen. And it is a way to look at your life in God's presence. And um, I'll just be completely honest. I need a moment before the message to look at my life in God's presence. So I thought you could join me in this exercise. All right. This exercise has five movements and I'll just kind of take you through it. It'll take a couple of minutes. You're welcome to keep your eyes open. Close your eyes. I'll close my eyes. It helps me. And what all we're going to do is examine the last 24 hours of our life with God. Okay. Okay. Ready to exercise? No stretching is involved. <clears throat> okay. So the first uh, part of the exam and exercise is to simply recognize God's presence and thank him for it. So I'll, I'll, I'll give my prayer out loud and then I'll give you a few moments to just express your own thanksgiving to God. Father God, as I thank you so often, I'm, I'm grateful for your presence. I'm grateful, God, you didn't leave us alone. We're not orphans. That there is nowhere in this world, therefore nowhere in our lives, that your presence can't be seen. You are all in all. And we thank you, God, that you are near us. When we pray those prayers of gratitude, it's kind of like we're, we walk into somebody's house and we say, thanks for being here, because we're in his house, we're in his world, and yet we're thanking him for being present, because he's invited us. The second movement in, the Ignatius, in this examen, in this exercise, is to look back over the last 24 hours and just ask God to highlight where he was in your life. So you're just, you're just Lord, where were you? In the last 24 hours, where did you show yourself? Maybe in a place of beauty, maybe in a place of need, maybe in an a, a amazing time of worship, or maybe a time of grief where the tenderness of God came. So just spend a moment and look through the last 24 hours of your life and just ask God, where were you? Show me the places where you were present and active in my life. Walking through the room now? <laughs> it's me?
The third part of this exercise is then to look back through this last day and ask the Lord, is there any place where I failed to love as you would love? It's not, it's not introspection. It's not inward. It's just God, Holy Spirit, come and show me where I have veered from the perfect path of love. It's called sin. And we just ask the Lord to come and show us that. We come to perhaps the hardest, but the most fruitful part of the exercise. And that's where we look at that sin with God standing next to Jesus and we say we're sorry. It's kind of like if I sometimes picture myself almost as a child before a parent and there's the broken vase and my disobedience that caused it. And we look together on that broken vase and from the depths of my heart I say I'm sorry. And there in the midst of that, I hear my father say, we'll take care of it. You're forgiven. So just turn in your heart from those things that you've done that God pointed out that were wrong. Bring those sins to him and just visualize Jesus scooping those things up, putting them at the foot of the cross, and the blood of Jesus covering them that they are no more. Now, in the final movement of the examen, we move from past to standing here in the present and with the help of the Holy Spirit looking forward. We're not in this place asking God, help me be better, help me do better. We're asking God for the grace to recognize his presence in our lives and the faith to simply walk in what he's given us. So it's a simple prayer like, Lord, thank you that I'm forgiven. Thank you that I'm cleansed. Thank you that I'm your son or your daughter. Now, God, I just ask for a great awareness of the grace that's been poured out in my heart by the Holy Spirit, that I might see you, hear you, feel you, obey you in every aspect of my life this next 24 hours with your grace and to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. See, transformation happens in prayer. (laughs) The disturbance goes away, and God gives us a clear path. Okay, good. Um, If that was helpful for you, and if you'd kind of like more information on that, 
couple of years ago at the church, we actually put together a little card that has the examen uh, that sort of written out sort of steps you can go through. It's something that many believers around the world do every single day or every morning or every night. It's just a cleansing time with God, and it gives you a renewed perspective on, okay, I'm forgiven, I'm in Christ, let's make it happen now. So, okay. Uh, we're in a series uh, that I'm just calling the Gospel of the Kingdom. That's a very broad title. We could uh, speak uh, about the Gospel of the Kingdom for the next 30, 40 years until Jesus comes back or whatever. Uh, I'm doing it in five weeks, and we're hitting highlights. We talked the first week about what it means that First Thessalonians 2, 4, we've been entrusted with the gospel. This incredible mystery of God has been given to us, and it seemed right to God. That is, in his providence, God decided, this pearl of great price I will entrust to human beings. And he's chosen that men and women would be the primary vehicle of the stewardship and the communication of the gospel. It's a great privilege. It's a great privilege. Last week we talked about the content of the gospel. And I made a pretty big deal about the content of the gospel being different than the communication of the gospel. Lori's going to help us next week to have a real uh, clear understanding of what it looks like to communicate the gospel. How do you do it? When God gives you that chance, how do you steward the gospel and, and share that great news with someone else? Today, I want to talk about the impact of the gospel. And again, it, this is a, a topic that really you could preach forever and never exhaust. So I'm not going to try to do that. And I'm not even going to do this in a scriptural topical way. Because it would, it would make me and you crazy. What I decided to do was just look to one scripture and take one scripture from the Apostle Paul, Colossians 1, verses 12 to 14, just those three verses, and pull out five things there that are, in, a, in the broadest sense, the impact of the gospel. You and I are living out the impact of the gospel right now. Any sense of freedom, any sense of joy, any sense of cleansing, forgiveness, uh, power, love, any of that in your life right now is uh, a part of the impact of the good news of Jesus on your life. Everything changed when you came to him. I want to look through this uh, passage and, and look at these five things there. They are theological terms. I'm going to try to de-theologicalize them so that we can live in them because they're not meant to be memorized. They're meant to be lived in. Even more than lived in, they're meant to be lived out. And that's the grace of God in our lives. I defined the gospel last week as the, uh, the gracious work God has accomplished through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his life, death, and resurrection, by which the sin and guilt that condemned us by separating us from God has been overcome. I put this in your notes. If you have notes, that, you, know, you can look at them. I don't mind if you read the notes along while I speak. Um, I put them there because I thought clarity was important when it comes to impact. And this, this is how it came to me this week as I was preparing this message. <clears throat> there is no need for anything to separate us now from God and the fullness of the life that Jesus himself experienced while treading this, this earth as one of us. Because of the gospel, because God initiated it, Jesus accomplished it, the Holy Spirit sealed it, and we have accepted it because of that there is nothing that needs to separate us from living out 
the life of the kingdom exactly in the way that Jesus lived out the life of the kingdom when he was fully man on this earth. Let that one just slither into your brain and explode. Because it's, it, it, I'm not saying it is something that we aspire to. I've got to work harder to be like Jesus. I'm saying that the impact of the gospel is that's available to you now. It's accessible. That's why we can say, what do we do at the vineyard? We continue the mission of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's one of our values written on the wall. Mm, over there. We continue the mission of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because every block between us and God and a life of godliness and power has been taken away. First Peter, Peter says, you now have every spiritual gift as you await for the coming of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. You lack nothing. That's just blatant biblical truth. Whether you feel it or not has no real impact on whether it's true. It's true. Feel your way into it. <clears throat> so what does the gospel mean? What is its impact? And I want to read these three verses, but I'm going to read them in context. Because especially when you're reading um, the, the letters of Paul, you don't really get to just pluck out any word you want and say whatever it means. You, Paul just writes like Paul. And so there's a lot there. So you kind of got to get the context of it. Okay, so I'm starting roughly uh, verse two or three of Colossians chapter one. The word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it's bearing fruit and increasing. And so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom. These are the prayers of Paul for the people of God the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to the glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Those last three verses is where we'll camp in a minute. But the rest of the context shows us that the impact of the gospel on our lives is not automatic. Okay, the impact of the gospel on our lives is not automatic just by believing the gospel and being saved doesn't make you Superman or Superwoman, doesn't make you invincible, doesn't, mean you, doesn't make you untemptable, right? Who can bear witness to that? Thanks for your honesty, right? What it does mean is that the life of Jesus is accessible to you. It's out there for you to grab hold of and to live. The gospel doesn't automatically make you Superman. It doesn't make perfection in your life automatic. Or why would Paul pray all those things? I mean, that's why I'm stressing this. Sometimes we want to say, well, I believe the gospel, therefore everything's fixed, I have nothing to do. Why even pray? But here's the Apostle Paul, direct revelation from God by the Holy Spirit, and after the gospel has been preached to the Colossians, he prays these things. He prays the knowledge of his will, that we'd have spiritual wisdom, that we'd bear fruit, increase in the knowledge of God, that we'd have power, that we'd have endurance and patience and joy, right? Why? Because those aren't automatic in the life of the believer. 
They're just accessible. So the gospel comes with great implication. But, you know, you know by evidence in your own life and the lives of others, one can accept the gospel and then walk away from Jesus. How does that happen? I don't know. But the the implications of the gospel aren't automatic when it comes to lifestyle. The gospel's not something we do. It's something that's been done. It's not a command. It's a reality. The gospel is a declaration. Here's what's true about you. It's also an invitation. What are you going to do about it? How will you live it? Because you now have access to everything that Jesus had access to. Gosh. Ephesians 1.13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of the glory of God. That's what, this is what that means. It means we are fully saved. We are fully redeemed. We are fully in Christ. And at the same time, we are being saved. And we are being redeemed. And we are walking in Christ. Right? That's, that's this, that, that pesky now and the not yet of the kingdom. I don't want to talk so much about the not yet. I want more than now. But we have to live in the reality that we're not, that the, the kingdom hasn't fully come in us. Otherwise, there's no motivation for us to press, press in, right? What's the motivation to press into intimacy with Jesus if we think, oh, I got it all. What do I need to do? I just cruise out till Jesus comes back or takes me home. And that's just not how Paul lived his life. It's not how Jesus lived his life. Okay. So what has God done for you in the gospel? Um, I'm going. I'm in page two, the second part of my notes now. I'm going to say five things in the next 15 minutes. If you just want them up front, I'll give them to you. Here's what God has done for you and me in the gospel. He's redeemed you. He's forgiven you. He's qualified you. Papers go flipping. He's delivered you, and he's transferred you from one kingdom to another. And in just... A few minutes, I'm going to look at those words and those activities, those realities, scripturally. And what I really long to do, if God will help me, is to take those words and help you understand what they look like in your life. How do you respond to this reality? What will it look like? The very end of uh, uh, Colossians 1.14 It says, we've been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. And then here's the phrase, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So I'm starting at the end with redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You've been redeemed. What that means is we've been rescued from slavery. Jesus paid a price to pull us out of a place of slavery to the devil. And here's what I don't want you to walk away with. I don't want you to think Satan was holding all of humanity and God paid him off. I know when you think of ransom, and that's a biblical word, you can start to think like, wow, Satan had a lot of power and God had to pay him off. That's not the way the biblical writers explain it. It's much more like this. Jesus saw people enslaved and he sacrificed himself. He took their place. It's not like Satan had some sort of authority, you know. Any authority Satan has is authority that we give to him. But we were enslaved. 
We were just, we were stuck there. We were looking at Satan day after day before we met Jesus and saying, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Every single one of us, that's where we were. And Jesus pulled a Rambo mission, right? And it's not just because I like that kind of movie that I say that. I say it because it wasn't a, a ransom paid to someone who earned it or had something like that. It was, it was Jesus walking into the camp of the enemy and bringing back the people that belonged to him. That's what redemption means. See, when we were in Satan's kingdom, we weren't living or breathing or working or acting in a way that was consistent with how God made us. We were acting like slaves when God made us free people. And so Jesus came in, the perfectly free person, and said, I'll lay down my life for every single one of these. Take me. And I know there was probably no smile on Jesus' face when he walked to the cross. I'm not saying that. But there had to be an inner smile in the Lord's spirit when he realized, Satan's going to watch me die, but it's only three days. I've already conquered the thing he's beaten me with. He redeemed us. Redemption means that God has taken the initiative. He acted compassionately on behalf of those who were powerless. It's important that we realize we didn't really do anything to help our redemption along. It's not like we saw Jesus rushing into the camp and we said, I'll start beating off the bad guys, break free of my chains and meet you in the field. The helicopter will come. Don't get that picture. We did nothing. We did nothing. We could do nothing. Jesus came all the way into the enemy's camp. He broke every chain that bound us. He beat up every demon that was after us. He took care of every stronghold because we didn't have it within us to do that. That's what redemption is. Remember our definition of the gospel. It's the gracious work of God, which, which God has accomplished through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his life, death, and resurrection, by which the sin and guilt that condemned us by separating us from God has been overcome. Jesus blew through the enemy's camp, including, sorry for the graphic picture that just came to my mind, but including the ways that we had soiled ourselves in prison. Soiled ourselves in prison. Our own sin. And Jesus came in and grabbed us and hugged us and brought us out and has cleansed us. That's redemption. It's not just, here's, you know, my, here's my bottle, give me ten cents. No, it's here's my life. Give me what I've created. That's what redemption is. We've been redeemed. You have been redeemed. We've also been forgiven. So the end of that passage, it says, transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, comma. What does redemption look like? The forgiveness of sins. Hebrews ten seventeen and 18. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Quiz. All right. Their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Who's speaking here? Just throw it out. God. Thank you. Okay. It's not a trick. All right. God's speaking. Their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Okay. Remember no more. Like. Give me a definition of remember no more. Anybody? Never? Forget? 
Okay, is there any indication in that scripture that those sins are locked away in a secret place at some point to be brought back and read through again? No. No more. No more. You know the famous Greek uh, translation for no more? It means no more. Right? Nothing. Sometimes I think we get this idea that we have a sin or there's something or ours is so powerful. Ours was so heinous. Ours had such awful implications. You know, like we are still those soiled people in our own minds. And I just want to tell you, friends, brothers, sisters, it's a lie. We've been forgiven. And when God looks at us, when you just went through that exercise a few minutes back and you saw that sin that in your mind was so blatant and so awful and so shameful, God looks at that. It's not like God is stupid or ignorant. He distinctly remembers forgetting it. He distinctly remembers putting it away forever. Which means when the enemy comes back with a sin in our lives and says, hey, what about this? saint of God, we go, unfortunately for you, Jesus dealt with it. And you've got nothing on me. Nothing on me. Bless you. What this means is between us and God, we've been redeemed. He brought us out. We stand before God. We've been forgiven. It means that we owe God nothing. We owe God nothing. There's lots of stuff in the Bible that Paul and Jesus say we should do. These are things you are to do. But there's a big difference between debt and gratitude. Right? A big difference between a motivation of fear, I hope I do enough to earn what I was given, and love. Oh my gosh, it's all free. How do I pour myself out for the one who gave me freedom? That's the big difference. We owe God nothing. You get up in the morning and you think, oh, i got to work for God. It, it's just not true. You get to cooperate with God because you're an heir. You get to be with God in the world. Not you have to work for God in the world. It's grace. You owe him nothing. And so I wrote this. I'm going to read it just as I wrote it. And no single act of your life by you or by another to you can ever define you or determine your destiny. No single act of your life by you or another to you can ever define or determine, define you or determine your destiny. One act defines you now, the willing sacrifice of Jesus the King on your behalf. So when the enemy comes and brings that act from five minutes ago, five years ago, five decades ago, and comes and puts it in front of you, And start spitting shame at you. You say, you know what? That act doesn't define me anymore. Nor does it determine my destiny. One act defines me and determines my destiny. Jesus died for me. The king in place of the pauper. The king descended from heaven, walked through the smudge of earth, took every sin, beat it, rose from the dead, ascended, and now said to his children, go for it. Because there's nothing between you and me. Nothing. I, 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 can't, I, I can't say it forcefully enough to communicate how important it is for us to understand that nothing is remaining between us and God's perfect love. Nothing. 
It is pride to think that your sin is too bad for the blood of Jesus. Now, some of us want to say, but I just want to feel the complete, you know, I want to, I just want a true repentance. I'm all for true repentance, okay? But true repentance turns itself into deeds. Deeds of what? Gratitude, love, acceptance of grace. Don't do the work that Jesus already did. No one else needs to go to the cross to pay for sin. It's done. So if any of you want to, you know, pluck yourselves off the cross, take the nail out, take the nails out, just remember, you're free now. You're free to sacrifice yourself for God out of love, but you don't have to die for anybody's sin. Okay, I hope I got that one across clearly. We've been redeemed. We've been forgiven. What we do for God is not a debt, but a thanksgiving, motivated not by fear, but by unadulterated love. Okay, so two things, implications of the gospel. We've been redeemed, rescued completely. We've been forgiven. Slate is clean. Past, present, future. Slate is clean. Now, let's get on to the really good stuff. Let's get on to the stuff that has incredible impact in our lives today. In uh, Colossians 1.12, it says that God has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. It seems kind of ethereal, right? He's qualified us to share the inheritance of the saints in light. Here's what I think it means. We've been made competent or worthy of every bit of the inheritance that God has even for Jesus. Right? Even for Jesus. So we've been qualified. We've been made, like, you know, sometimes you try to earn your way into a club or you have to, you know, work your way into a college or something like that or you got to, you know, get a bunch of prerequisites done in order to get a job. Well, in that, in that context, what the Lord's saying here is you're in. You are qualified. No more training required. No more dues to be paid. You're in. You've been qualified to participate, to share in the inheritance of the saints. You know, what God has in store for the saints, read about it in Revelation. You can read about it in other places in the scripture is is eternal glory, riches unfathomable, joy inexpressible. That's the inheritance. And what God is saying to us because of Jesus is, you're in. <laughs> you're qualified. Do you ever walk into a place, you know, I don't know, you walked into a club downtown or maybe to a business setting and you just thought, I clearly don't fit here. My son just got married. Uh, he uh, and his wife went on a, a cruise for their honeymoon. That's fun, right? Didn't uh, my son, I love him, didn't think to take any like dress up clothes. I think he probably packed his bag full with a bathing suit and flip flops and a bathing suit. It's honeymoon on a cruise. I don't know what else you need, you know. So Ben just said, <laughs> should I be telling this? Too late. So Ben just said. Benja said, so this one night we walk into the dining room, you know, and Benja's got, I don't know why. He might have a polo on, but it's likely a Batman shirt or something, right? So he walks in and he sits down and they start to order. And then, and then he's looking around and he's like, hmm, everyone seems pretty dressed up here tonight, you know? He, he, you know, they, they start going through their little daily program and they realize, oh, this is the gala night. So this is the one night on the cruise that in order to go into the dining room, you have to have a coat and a tie on, you know? And Ben just said, like, 
people are looking at him like this, and the waiter's coming up, you know, and even a waiter on a cruise, they're supposed to be friendly, but a little bit of this kind of thing, you know. And then Ben just finally realized, he said, I just kind of slipped out of the back, you know. He went and borrowed a tie or something and walked back in. Here's my point. You ever feel like that? I'm in the kingdom. I'm in the church. I'm in a small group. I'm here among believers, but you know what? I don't fit. I'm unqualified. I don't know how to pray. I don't know the Bible well enough. I, they don't know what I'm struggling with. Whatever. I mean, I just want to remind you that that is not God speaking. That's the enemy trying to remind you where you used to be in your sin. And now, when Jesus comes up to wait on you, as a servant would, and you're sitting there on the cruise ready for the big meal, he looks at you no matter what you have on and says, you belong here. Would you like the lobster or the filet? To which you say, yes. If you're on a cruise. We've been qualified. Qualified... Because, and this is why, because God sees Jesus' credentials when he looks at us. You know, it's like you go into the, you come into the kingdom, you show your ID, God looks at it, and he sees Jesus. He says, you're in. You're good. Any sense, any remaining feeling for the believer, no matter how old you are in Christ, of disqualification, of I'm an alien in, my, in, the, in believers, with other believers. It's a lie. Just send it back to where it came from. Hell. Qualification means authorization. It means empowerment. My parents belong to a club in Pennsylvania. It's a pretty ritzy club. It's pretty cool. Um, it's one of those clubs where you actually can't pay cash. They won't take money because only members and guests of members are allowed. Right? So when I walk into this place, even though I am clearly not in the financial sense, worthy of this place. I paid no dues. I pay no monthly fees. When I walk in, go to the swimming pool, go up to the snack bar, order a cheeseburger, you know what they give me? They give me a bill. There's no money on it. It just has a place for a signature. Do you know what I signed? I signed Stephen R. Gooder, which is my dad's name. Why? Because they won't take my money. My, My money does no good there. I have been made, I have been qualified for that because my father's in. And because my father's in and, he's, and I'm his guest, I'm in. When I sign my dad's name, in their eyes, I am my dad. A little shorter. But I sign with the authority that my father gave me. And I get whatever I want. Why? Because it's, they're not looking at my clothes or my bank account. They're looking at who represents you. And I say, it's Steve Gooder. And they say, awesome, you're in. Just like that. That's what qualified means. We didn't pay the dues to get into heaven. There are no monthly fees required. Right? And we have access to everything. Everything. All the joy, all the riches, all the gifts, all the relationship, all the community, all the fellowship, everything. Because we come in with Jesus. We've been qualified. How much we live in our inheritance, all that Jesus has given to us, depends an awful lot on the faith that we cultivate and our ability to believe and exercise the authority that we've been given. Isn't that a huge part of the Christian life? It's a big part of the School of Kingdom ministry that we just started here. 
It's a big part of the Indianapolis School of Supernatural Ministry that Dave back there runs. It's a big part of maturity in general is recognizing and believing and then living in the authority that Jesus has already given us. Why is it that it's so hard for us as believers when we read in Luke, Jesus said, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. We go, boy, the apostles must have had a hard time with that. Jesus is talking to us. That's the authority he's given us. And we're not writing Delana Bradbury on the bottom of that. Delana's not healing people. She's writing Jesus. And so we say, in the name of Jesus, be healed. In the name of Jesus, Satan and your demons, go. In the name of Jesus, be free. Right? Because we've been qualified. Fourth, we've been delivered. God has delivered you from the domain of darkness. It means to rescue, to liberate, to save from someone or something. We were all, before Jesus, in a bad place under the rule of a bad guy. And Jesus came in and he rescued us. He delivered us. We're now heirs of God. We're co-heirs with Christ. It's not simply the future, right? It's not simply, okay, Lori, I see you. You got a little Jesus in you. You got a stamp to heaven when you die. Hope it goes well for you in the meantime. That's not deliverance. Deliverance is this. You are fully in the kingdom right now. You have all the rights of a daughter of the king. You have the authority of Jesus walking around on the earth. You have his humility. You have his joy. You have all his gifts. We've been delivered. We're not stained anymore by all that old stuff. We don't have to drag around the chains. We don't even have to go around and tell people how bad we used to be. Right? irrelevant we were all in our sin we've been delivered we no longer need to live in our old stuff because we have a new home a completely new home i think when i think about the um, being delivered from the domain of darkness when i think of darkness specifically i think of confusion and despair i mean it can mean a lot of things but in terms of The impact on my life, when I think of sometimes going back to places of darkness, I think of places that are confusing and full of despair. Things, you know, questions, things running around your brain like, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know if I'm valuable. I don't really know what the purpose of life is. I don't know if God really loves me. See, that's all belonging to the kingdom of darkness. But Jesus delivered us from that. That's not our home anymore. Some of those feelings of despair and confusion might feel very familiar to you, right? Let's be honest. They might even be comfortable. If we walk around, if if we walk back into confusion and despair as believers, sometimes we just feel more comfortable there because we think, well, I don't have any responsibility. If I can just claim confusion and despair, you know what? It's not my fault, right? Sorry for the good news here. If you walk back in despair and confusion after you've been delivered from them, it is your fault. Don't be condemned. Just hear the invitation. I don't have to live in confusion and despair. That's the the realm of the enemy. That's the domain of darkness. Oh, I've been delivered from that. Huh. Then why am I staring at the wall of confusion and despair again? And then this is where we have empowered wills to make choices about what we think and how we act, and how we live. 
if you are living in confusion and despair, you're out of place. And you have one choice. I'll just say it the way Jesus said, repent and believe the good news. Turn away from confusion and despair and turn back to Caesar, to, to, to Caesar's. Turn back to Jesus and you just tell Jesus like I do often. Jesus, I feel confused. I feel sad, but that's not the truth about me. Release your glory again. Release your joy again. Help me meditate on truth rather than dwell in darkness again. We're redeemed. We're forgiven. We're, de- we're um, qualified. We're delivered. And we've been transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son. We live in a new place. This is not just spiritual, okay? This is not just spiritual. I, I don't know how to say this in the... I don't know how to say this, and I'll try to anyway. Living in a new place, we've been transferred into God's kingdom. We live in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here around us. Somehow, where we go, the kingdom is present, right? It manifests itself in physical ways. I'm, I'm not saying if you think hard enough, there'll be a throne and a pile of gold. That's not my point. My point is when you walk into any place, the kingdom is there present because the kingdom is within you. And so you get to extend authority in the name of the king. When you say to a sick uh, person, be healed, that healing manifests in a physical way, right? Because the kingdom of God is there. It's not just a in the future type of a thing. It's present. And I wonder the impact on our lives and the world around us if we were to begin to realize that the kingdom of God is here. I live in the kingdom of God. It's not like I have to leave the kingdom of God when I leave my quiet time in the morning and then go out into the evil cosmos. That's really not an accurate picture of the way Jesus asks us to live. He says you walk with the king and the kingdom fully present everywhere you go. The impact should not be evil cosmos on us, but beautiful king in us on evil cosmos. So like Bill Johnson, I love the way he says it. In the Old Testament, you touched a leper, you got leprosy. In the New Testament, with Jesus, you touch a leper, they get healed. Because we carry the kingdom. Because we live in a new place. And, you know, when we are coming in here on a Sunday morning and gathering in the presence of Jesus, this is the community of the king. What we're really doing is we're not, we're not trying to get away from the world we're just get it, trying to get as close to the reality of the kingdom as possible because it's within us. And here we cultivate the community of the king. We cultivate the community of the king. The love, the joy, the righteousness, the truth-telling, the healing of the king right here in this community. And then full of that kingdom, we walk out into the world and let it spill out. Does that, does that make sense? I mean, what has happened to us, the implications of the gospel for us, are immeasurable. I spent 30 minutes, I could spend 300 years and not be able to articulate the implications of the gospel, the good news that God initiated on our behalf, breaking down anything that separated us from God because Jesus, perfect man, perfect God, took our sin and our shame, bridged the gap and brought us to God. That's the reality we live in and it's the reality that we give away.
Amen? Amen. Okay, Jeff, why don't you come forward? Jeff's going to lead us in a time of ministry. We don't move from, here's the preaching, I'm all psyched up now, you know, oh, it's ministry. No, we move from this, reality of the kingdom and the gospel in my life, to what will it look like?